This is the Infinite Spark of Being podcast. My name is Keith Welsh, and I've been creating under the name The Infinite Spark of Being since about 2010. At least I think it was 2010. Um, It all started as a Tumblr blog, and I cannot figure out how to tell when I started the Tumblr blog. And since I've cleaned it out so many times, I don't have any of the original posts. So if you do know how to figure that out, please, please reach out because I (laughs) can't seem to figure it out. Anyway, uh, this first episode, I would like to kind of explain how I got here spiritually, uh, what my life has looked like um, up until this point as far as the spiritual path is concerned. The next episode, I'm going to explain the origins of the infinite spark of being. But before that, I want you to understand where I'm coming from. in Palm Beach County, which is in South Florida, and my mother identified as a Southern Baptist. Uh, She was very faithful. My father, on the other hand, was not religious. He um, had an air of spirituality to him. My parents were redneck country people, and my dad had this kind of weird thing about him. It was interesting. One time I asked him why he uh, didn't go to church with mom and I, and he said that it was because, uh, he said, son, the man upstairs and I have a special understanding. And that's pretty funny because if you'd known my dad, he's been dead 14 years, but if you'd known him, he, uh, he may have because he lived kind of a wild life. My mother, uh, she, she died last year, but she was a very... Uh, very faithful lady, you know, but it was that weird kind of faith that people have when they just kind of grow up a certain way and they don't have an experience that turns them on to something. They're just kind of born with it. And it's almost like it's taken for granted, I guess. I don't know. A lot of you know what I'm saying because my faith in Christianity was, came from the same place, you know, of like, Just you're born that way, you're raised that way, and that's just the way you think the world is, you know? Um, Also, to be fair, like a lot of people aren't really exposed to anything else, you know? So I was, my mother being Southern Baptist, she put me in this school that was affiliated with our church. It was a Southern Baptist school. So I'm going to a Southern Baptist school, I'm going to a Southern Baptist church, and I'm just up to my eyeballs in... uh, Southern baptism. (laughs) Um, I, uh, yeah, that was my, that was my life. Um, I was part of, uh, the youth group. I did peer group Bible study. I was in the church band, which was this Christian rock band. Um, yeah, that was, that was my whole thing. And it, and, but I never had a moment with it. I was never touched by it or moved by it. I just kind of did it. Um, and a lot of, you know what that means, you know, you, you brought up a certain way and you just kind of accept things. It's just the way it is. Also, there's this weird threat of burning in a lake of fire. (laughs) 
I remember um, in the last few years, um, I know I was definitely in my 40s, but my mother was asking me about Jesus and my, my thoughts on Jesus, you know, because she knows that I didn't exactly, uh, you know, stay in the faith. Um, and I was, you know, we were just talking and she goes, I just want to know that I'm going to see you when I die. And that's wild because that you see the clinging, like her mind clinging to something. But um, she goes, I just want to know that I'll see you when I die. I don't want you to go to hell. And I told her, I go, Mom, I can get used to anything, you know. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be hot for the first week. <laughs> After that, I'll be fine. Um, she had a really good sense of humor. We uh, laughed a lot. But, you know, she had her religious fear. So... Um, I'm going to this, uh, church and school and, um, I did have one experience and I was 15 and, uh, I was surfing early in the morning. Um, I might screw up a lot of the chronology here because I'm kind of doing this on the fly. Um, I know I was 15 because we had just moved into this townhouse across the street from this place I was surfing. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, we moved in there when I was 15. My mom and I, rather, my dad was off doing something else that is worthy of its own episode. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm surfing at daybreak. I also know I was 15 because I was on a purple and white local motion surfboard. And that's the one I had at that time. So... I'm out there and uh, I had this experience where it felt like this presence, and a lot of you have had this experience, this presence kind of filled in the space. And a lot of times people say this present descended, right? And I've said that it descended in the past. But I think that the reason I would use the word descend is because I am... Um, you know, using language and being of that kind of, you know, being a human being with a mind and language being a cognitive faculty, I assumed that it was something bigger and greater than me, so it must have come from above, <laughs> right? So um, I'm going to say that it filled in, filled in the space. And again, language being a cognitive faculty of the mind, that uh, puts... so language is putting the world into context for the mind. Right. And I was, and I would say that at the time, well, at the time I said that it was this God experience and that God had descended in God, but it was, it was God through the Christian lens. It wasn't God through any other lens because the language I was using, the vocabulary that I had was as a Christian. Right. So that's how these things go at this point. You know, having these experiences now, I consider them unity consciousness experiences. That there are those moments where you get to dip your toe into that ocean, right? Anyway, I had that moment. And what is really interesting when I think back about it is it didn't change anything for me. I had it and then that was it. I wasn't blown away. I wasn't, uh, you know, suddenly fervently, whatever. I, I was just, yeah, which is interesting when I think back, like, why didn't I, you know, go off the rails, but whatever. So I was 15 then. 
And um, like I said, very active in the church, uh, youth group, peer group, Bible study, um, and uh, the, the church band, the Christian rock band. And I believe that it was about 15 years old when I was told um, that I didn't have a Christian voice and that I shouldn't sing in church. <laughs> so how do you like that? Um, anyway, but when I was about, uh, I was 17 when I started going to punk rock shows and that was important because the punk rock shows are where I was exposed to, you know, becoming more involved in punk rock. And, you know, I was, I skated and surfed and was into punk music and going to punk shows and hardcore shows. And, there I was exposed with political, I was exposed to rather, I was exposed to political alternatives, um, social alternatives and spiritual alternatives. And one of those spiritual alternatives came in the form of a hardcore band that was a Hare Krishna hardcore band called Shelter. Um, there was another one called 108 that was really good too, but Shelter to me was, that was the thing. Um, I believe the Cro-Mags had that bent as well. I know that John Joseph, um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, so there was two people in that band, uh, Ray Capo and Porcel. They were in other bands like Youth of Today and Judge. And now I believe they're known as Raghunath. Ray Capo, I believe, is known as Raghunath. And Porcel is known as Parmananda, I think. Like I said, I'm kind of doing this on the fly. <laughs> So I don't have notes. Um, maybe I should in the future, but here we go. Um, and this this band Shelter was my first exposure to Eastern things, Eastern philosophy, Eastern thought, Eastern religion. And it was very exotic to me. I loved it. And some of you understand this, that when you're brought up as a Christian, these things have kind of this naughty air to them and they almost draw you in, you know, like these exotic pictures and the, this, this phrasing and these words in this weird language. And so it was my first exposure to that. And, um, at the, on side two of one of the tapes I had, it was either attaining the Supreme or perfection of desire. There was a guy giving a talk, a Westerner. I believe that, um, I believe he was a Swami. I don't know. But anyway, he said, uh, he said, you are not your body. And that was, I needed that in that moment. And in Zen Buddhism, I believe they have a saying that a leaf falling at the right moment can wake you up. You know, and I guess the opposite of that would be like a tree full of leaves can fall on your head. If you're not ready to wake up, you're not going to wake up. Um, but I, in that moment, something switched. It, 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 uh, it moved something. And so, I mean, as a Christian, you're brought up with the concept of soul and vessel and this and that. And a Christian might say, well, I have a soul, right? Um, most, you know, of these religions say, I have a soul. But in the East, they wanted to know who I was. Who is this I that has a soul? And that, I think, is the flip. And that, I think, is the interesting piece of this. Right? So, um, 
I heard that. I felt that. And then he went on to talk about how the five senses were so faulty. You could only see certain things in the electromagnetic spectrum spectrum, and you can only hear certain, uh, you know, uh, you can only see certain things. You only hear certain things. And, um, I, uh, as a kid, you know, I was always interested in the unseen, you know, I was always interested in paranormal things, um, uh, paranormal, uh, UFOs and Bigfoot and all this weird stuff that, that, the that the culture traditionally kind of poo pooed. I was interested in it and spirituality, religion, God is that falls in that category, right? Of it's unseen, you know? So anyway, he had, he had my attention, you know, and he said that with these faulty senses, we like to decide how the world is. And here was this adult saying like, Hey, all this is questionable. And I felt that because that was my whole thing. And I, I can't like, you know, I have no idea other than that's my only explanation, right? That I just always was interested in shit you can't see. That's my only explanation. It's not like I had a near-death experience and, you know, became curious about something. It was like I said, even I had when I had that, that moment that was so powerful when I was 15, I still wasn't, it wasn't driving me. Because, I mean, before that, I was, you know, interested, but I was interested in my religion and I was interested in it from a different point of view. You know, like my mom had bought me the lost books of the Bible and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, um, so hearing that talk kind of pushed me into essentially stealing books. I started stealing books from the Barnes and Noble and Palm Beach Gardens, and it was before they had censors, and I could fit 12 books in my menace shorts, which were these big, baggy skate shorts. It was the 90s, and uh, it had six pockets, and I could fit uh, two books in each pocket, two paperbacks. So, and I still have a lot of those books, so they went to good use, right? <laughs> um, anyway, a friend of mine had, uh, well, see, this is where I'm getting the chronology script, because at some point I started spending a lot of time at the Palm Beach County Library near my house. And I was reading a lot about Hinduism, about Buddhism, about the Eastern philosophies and religions but um anyway it like i said it doesn't matter a friend of mine uh tim had a brief dalliance with the Hare krishnas and um in that time he had been given like all these books so the international society for krishna consciousness known as icecon uh has a thing called the bhaktivedanta book trust and they just pump out books and I'm looking at my shelf right now. I still have a lot of them. And they're these little paperbacks. And on things like one of them here says, uh, life comes from life. Um, easy journey to other planets, which is interesting. Um, and a higher taste. Uh, I don't, I can't read them from here. My eyes are bad. <laughs> But um, he gave me all these books, and uh, one of the books he gave me was a little thicker. Oh, I also have Prabhupada, like the biography of Prabhupada. Um, but he gave me this book called The Science of Self-Realization. It was by A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. 
Prabhupada was the man who, when he was 70, jumped on a steamship in India and took it to, Eng- I believe he went to England. Yeah. And where he was told by his guru at 70, he did this, remember, but he was told by his guru that he should go to the West to spread this stuff. And it was <clears throat> the Hare Krishna movement is known as Vaishnavism, right? Uh, Vaishnavism is the worship of the aspect of God known as Vishnu. Vishnu is the sustainer. So Brahma is the creator, Shiva is the destroyer, and uh, Vishnu is the sustainer. So their um, focus is mainly on Vishnu, and that's where the the Maha Mantra comes from, um, using the names of Krishna and Ram and Hari. Um, So... Yeah. So he comes to the West, he brings uh, the Hare Krishna movement, and this book called The Science of Self-Realization was um, essentially transcripts of him having conversations with people about this. Um, And this book blew my fucking mind. It's the only way I can say it. I've read it, again, a leaf falling at the right moment, right? Because... I've, I, I've read it since then and it didn't like blow my mind. I mean, it's not a horrible book, but I was like, yeah, whatever. Felt nothing. Um, but again, you know, those are moments, right? They just, they shift you. And I was obsessed with this book and I remember I was working at Pier 1 Imports and I'm reading it in the, in the stock room and this, this older lady, Linda. You guys hear that? <laughs> that is so interesting. There's like these, I, I just moved into this house and there are all these weird knocks that happen in this room. It's so interesting. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, this is the room. I'm, I'm doing this and you'll notice there's some, some kind of room reverberation. Uh, I'm in my room with, uh, with my puja table and altar and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I've tried to fix the room noise, so please be patient with me. Um, so I read this book, uh, I'm reading it at uh, Pier One Imports and this woman, Linda, I worked with this older lady, she comes up behind me and she knew what I was reading because she was asking me about it and not like, oh, what's that? But like in a very familiar way and then asked me, have you ever read the Bhagavad Gita? And I was like, no, what's that? And I mean, I'd seen the name in, uh, in these books, but I'd never read it. Um, the next day she brought it to me. She brought me a Bhagavad Gita. Now here's the thing that's crazy about that is that she didn't just bring me the Bhagavad Gita. She brought me the Bhagavad Gita as it is, which is, uh, the, the ISKCON recommended or ISKCON publication of the Bhagavad Gita that has, so the thing I want to point out real quick is that she knew what this stuff was. And that was very strange in the nineties in Palm beach gardens to meet this older lady that knows anything about the Hare Krishna movement, Prabhupada or any of this stuff. That was really wild. I mean, the odds are fucking slim, but she gave me this Bhagavad Gita. It's a thick hardback one. And, um, the interesting thing about it is that, so it shows the verse in Sanskrit, like Sanskrit lettering and then it translates it uh, into 
like Roman letters, like the way we understand letters, but still in Sanskrit. And then it is the direct translation from Sanskrit directly into English. So it's a little kind of jumbled and hard to understand for an American brain. And then the last one is it, the verse kind of structured in a way that I can understand it as an English speaking American. And then after that is the purport, which is Prabhupada's commentary. So this thing is like, it's like a textbook. It's not like a textbook. Don't listen to me, but it's, it's good. It's interesting. And it's his, um, commentary on it. And FYI, my favorite, so, real quick. She, so she gave me that and she wrote the date and her name in it, which I thought was amazing. And so I've been reading the Bhagavad Gita on a loop since 1996. That's when this happened. And, um, so I wanted to say my favorite, uh, commentary on the Bhagavad Gita is by a man, and I'm going to screw up his last name, Eknath, E-K-N-A-T-H, Eknath Eshwan, and I'm not going to touch that last name, but if you uh, search um, the Bhagavad Gita and then search Eknath, his will come up. It's, it's got a blue cover. Really great. Um, so I... Uh, started reading that and I started to think, you know, this God thing is a game of telephone. So I want, cause what the science of self-realization, what Prabhupada alluded to is that, you know, that this system is very old and he's of course in the West now trying to appeal to Christians. But anyway, um, so I started, you know, I got into, I started reading the Upanishads um, the Rig Veda, like the oldest of the old. That's what I want to know. Cause I figured this God thing is like a game of telephone and it's just gotten watered down and weird over the years. So I wanted to know what the original teaching was, you know, and it was from what I'd read, the Upanishads were the oldest account of man having, uh, or attempting to have a relationship or correspondence or whatever with a higher power. So I started reading them, the Upanishads, uh, and I remember reading the Kata Upanishad and being like, this is essentially the seven temptations of Christ and the five temptations of Buddha. So that really fueled my searching. Um, but the Hare Krishna movement really appealed to me. And I ended up buying beads. Like I bought some mala beads and I started chanting. And I remember being afraid to tell my friends because I was like, they're going to fuck with me. And I am probably right. They would have fucked with me. <laughs> anyway, so that was 1996. Um, shortly after that, um, my first record came out. My first seven inch, which is a 45 for some of you. And um, the time came to leave Palm Beach County. So I moved to Gainesville, Florida, where the University of Florida is. And that town has a really rich history in punk rock. Uh, Hot Water Music, Against Me, uh, Strike Force Diablo. But at the time, like Asshole Parade and Hot Water Music were bands that I liked. I would played with them and wanted to move there. So I moved there without really knowing anybody. I, like if I went to a show, I would know people, but I didn't know them in the way I could just call and hang out, right? <clears throat> so I moved up and start playing shows. Uh, shortly after that, a lot of my friends from down here moved up. 
And, you know, we had our South Florida family up in Gainesville, but uh, I was introduced to Krishna Lunch, which is, um, and I'm, I think I'm screwing up the name of this, Prashad, Prashadam, I don't know, the blessed food that they serve. Um, so the Hare Krishna devotees would serve lunch, Krishna lunch in the middle of campus every day. And so we were all just broke, punk rock, whatever. And we would just go there and eat for free. Um, and, uh, so they'd serve lunch and they would also stand on the corner at 13th and university and chant on like Fridays at like four o'clock or three o'clock or something. And they'd always hand out like ginger snaps and books and all this stuff. And it was cool. Um, and being in that environment really fueled my interest in it. Uh, so one day, and again, I'm, I'm skipping over a bunch of shit, but one day I'm, um, I can't make this six hours. I have no idea what time I'm even at right now, but, um, one day I'm online and I'm watching a, vi uh, a thing, it was either on YouTube or this site called KrishnaTube. Yes, it's called KrishnaTube and it's a bunch of videos that are um, IceCon approved. They're interesting. Um, there's a great video on there about Jesus in Kashmir, which is fascinating. But um, I'm watching it and there's two teachers on there talking to students and one of the guys' name was Mahatma Das and the other one was Badahari Das. And this guy, Badahari Das, said some stuff that I really vibed with. Like, he said something like, um, and I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth, man. Just take everything I say with a grain of salt. But he said, uh, uh, the, the world still fascinates me. Like, he's still interested in worldly things. And I was like, man, that's really kind of ballsy. And then um, he also said, he said that, um, he goes, I, and this is the, the weird thing that I don't want to kind of fuck up, but I think he said something to the effect that he didn't know how much of it was true or how much of it he believed, as in like the Vedas, which was, you know, interesting. So I was like, I felt drawn to this guy. And this is one of those things, right, where... I want you to understand this. When you feel strongly compelled to do something, do it. I felt strongly compelled to reach out to Badahari Das, so I sent him an email. Um, I Googled him, found him. Turns out he's a Kirtanwala. Uh, like, if you've ever listened to like Krishna Das, that kind of thing, but he's, you know, kind of stays within the Hare Krishna movement. <laughs> he has good albums and records. Um, so I searched him, emailed him, and it turned out, go figure, he lived in Alachua, Florida. Now, the reason this is interesting, so um, in Gainesville at that time, Gainesville's in Alachua County, right? And there's a town in Alachua County called Alachua, and it's about 20 minutes or 15 minutes north of Gainesville, and it at the time had the largest congregation of Hare Krishnas in North America. They were everywhere. And it turned out that's where he lived. So that was really cool. And um, we played phone tag a bit. And then uh, we met at a Home Depot somewhere between Gainesville and Alachua, where we sat on this, like at a picnic table and talked for, it had to have been two hours, honestly. And I 
I want to say three hours. But anyway, um, I grilled this dude. I just, because I'd been storing up all these questions, looking for somebody that could tell me something, right? And here I've got him in front of me. And this guy had run the LA temple. He'd run all these other temples. Like he was like up there. And he was an older dude. Um, like he humored me and he listened to me and he answered every question I had. And he was honest. And that was what was really cool. So after that, he started to invite me out to the temple on Sundays where they had food and kirtan and uh, they would do a Bhagavad Gita lecture. And it was cool, man. And he kind of became my first real teacher. He was the first person to spend time with me and educate me on things. And it was very cool. Um, and so Hare Krishna the Hare Krishna movement, Vaishnavism, is a bhakti tradition, a devotional yoga, bhakti yoga. Christian, uh, Christianity could be considered bhakti yoga, Islam, all this stuff, right? And the problem with devotional paths is that they, uh, <laughs> they only go to a point, right? Um, they start to give you weird answers for things that just seemed really um, not thought out, you know. So I'm start. It's a box, and essentially at the time I'm bumping up against the edge of this box. And about that time, my um, yeah, we were married. I'm not married now, but I don't know how to like say ex-wife because we were married at the time. Either way, the person I'm married to at the time. She had uh, foot problems and wanted to try uh, Chinese medicine, acupuncture and Chinese medicine. So she found this place and this clinic was run by a man who was a Tibetan Buddhist Lama and he was a monk and his name was Lama Losong. And Lama Losong became and still is my most important teacher. Um, and so he has this clinic. He had it before he became a Lama and a monk and so he keeps it and just kind of funnels the money back into uh, our shrine room there at the, we have the Karma Kagyu Lineage Center that's there in Gainesville, Florida. KTC or KCT? I don't know. KTD? I don't know. They've got these abbreviations because none of our English speaking tongues can say half this shit. But, um, so I went with her to meet this guy and he comes out in his like monk garb and I'm like, oh, this, this dude's serious. And, um, it was weird, right? Uh, he's wearing his red, red and yellow robes, and so he's got her on the table. He's looking at her feet. She's having these feet problems, and he uh, he was funny. He was funny in a really dry, backhanded way, and uh, I don't want to you know blow up this person's spot too much, <laughs> but we're sitting there at his desk. We're done, and um, he's writing something down for her and she goes so keith's into all this meditation stuff do you think this is something that i should get into <laughs> and he goes he stops and, and lama losan has this very soft voice it's very sweet it is it's soft and sweet to me anyway but he goes uh he goes meditation isn't for everybody he goes if you don't have a mind I wouldn't bother with it. But if you have a mind, it's probably a good idea to do it. And then he just kept writing it. And I was like, this dude is fucking funny. 
So um, he let us know that he does a Dharma study um, every Sunday. So um, I, I went. I went. Now, mind you, I am uh, wouldn't say I'm eyeballs deep in Krishna consciousness, but I would say I'm, I'm up to my nipples in it. And um, I show up to this Dharma thing and I sit in the back on this couch with my arms folded. Um, and I'm just kind of listening and I don't like it. You know, I'm like, these guys are just mumbling in Tibetan and they're sitting here like, there's no singing or dancing. There's no kirtan. There's no food. I'm like, why aren't we chanting? What is this? You know, because, you know, in Krishna consciousness, like the chanting is the most important part. Um, And I'm like, this is just weird. Anyway, it was over and I left and um, I went home and my wife at the time goes, so what did you think? And I go, meh. I didn't like it. And she goes, are you going to go back? And I go, yeah, I'm probably going to go back. And I started going back. And the next thing you know, um, a couple weeks later, I'm... So you go in the room and it's all these like meditation cushions and puja tables on the floor. And I was like, the first time I was just sitting on this couch. Next thing you know, a couple weeks, I'm on the floor on a meditation cushion, meditating with everybody, doing practices with everybody. And there I am. And like Lama Losang told me, he goes, the Dharma just works on you. It just works. And the thing that was interesting was he was saying stuff that I could see happen in my life. I don't mean like predictions. I mean, he's just telling me how it is. He's giving me the nature of reality. He's giving me the nature of the mind and I'm seeing it unfold. Whereas, you know, I love the Ramayana. I love the Bhagavad Gita. But... I mean, not to get, but let's just look at the Ramayana, like you, these stories of Hanuman and everything. It's like, yeah, like that's cool, but I kind of need to see some shit happen in my life. So that's why Buddhism sucked me in, man. It just drew me in. Um, at this point, I do have this kind of weird hybrid where like, I'm just, I still chant Hare Krishna. I still have my bead bag and everything and I still do japa. Japa means to chant softly or whatever. Still do japa. I still do my, you know, Tibetan practices and all that stuff. So um, I uh, fell in love with um, the Karmakagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. And um, I started going to Dharma study and then I took refuge. And um, the taking refuge is I mean, like you, like initiation or whatever. But you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And um, my so uh, the refuge ceremony was done by um, Kempo Karta Rinpoche, who's Lama Losan's teacher. Kempo Karta Rinpoche died uh, in 2020, and he was the abbot of the North American seat of the Karmapa, which is the monastery in Woodstock, New York. And he was one of the original monks that walked from Tibet to India during the Chinese occupation, but he did the, um, the refuge ceremony. And when you take refuge, you get a name. And my name is Karma Chochi Jinpa, which means Dharma generosity. And at the time, um, I was a graphic designer. And so I'm sitting here in this room taking refuge with all these other people and there's people watching and whatever. I get this card with my name on it and I look up and I'm like, this is fucking stupid. <laughs> I'm like, 
this fucking guy pulled this name out of a hat. This doesn't have anything to do with me. You know? And, well, the fascinating thing about it is that my job, my nine to five, is in mental health and drug addiction. And I originally was hired to do meditation, to teach meditation and to do, like, I was doing groups on Dharma. And it's really strange the way it's unfolded because now you have the books in this apparent podcast and me, my nine to five job is essentially teaching Dharma because I'm not a therapist. So I teach Dharma all day. I put it in clinical terms sometimes. Lately, I've got a wild hair in my ass and I'm not. I've been using Sanskrit, but <laughs> whatever. Um, so that's been it thus, thought, thus far, you know. I, um, I remember going to Lama Losan after, you know, after a little while in the mental health field and saying, I remember asking him, I was like, why do you know, why do we get these names? And he said, Rinpoche just picks them. And I said, it's really weird that I'm working and doing what I'm doing and I have this name. And Lama Lohsan goes, he just knows. So I thought that was cute and funny. Um, another interesting kind of coincidence or I don't know, synchronicity. I don't know what you'd call it, but... So I was always interested in the Amitabha practice or the Green Tara practice, but Lama Lasan did the Medicine Buddha practice, which is known as the Buddha of mental health. And at the time I was doing it just because that was his practice. So I had access to it, right? You just do the practice that you have access to. You know, that's what Lama Lasan would say. He's like, do the Dharma that's in front of you. So here I am doing this in Lama Losan before he was a monk and a Lama was a psychologist. So he, you know, was um, doing this medicine Buddha practice, teaching us the medicine Buddha practice. And um, that became it. And then lo and behold, you know, years and years later, here I am working in mental health, being generous with the Dharma. So, you know, I'd like to do an episode on free will and what that even looks like and whether it's destiny or not. But so that's the story thus far. That's that's uh, that's my spiritual background. Um, like I said, next episode, I'm going to do um, the origin of the infinite spark of being. How and why I started it. Um, I have a Patreon uh, they're just kindness donations. That's all of $1 and $5. It's very much appreciated. Um, you know, tell your friends about this podcast, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and if you have questions or comments or grievances, you know, reach out. We know each other. That whole thing about us having been mother, father, sister, brother, cousin, aunt, best friend to one another at some point, I believe that. And I, I, when, when I speak with you guys through email or, or DM or whatever, I don't feel like I'm speaking to a stranger. I know you. And you know me. So don't make it weird. Um, reach out. <laughs>